0: I look with you, and um, I'll, I'll try to be brief because I know that uh, we've had an hour or so already, but we want to look at God's Word together tonight, um, and the theme is True Worshippers. Uh, as I was praying about what I would preach on this evening, I really believe that it was a Holy Spirit-inspired thing, led me to think about the whole context of what it is that we're doing as a church, um, not just for Venue 251 and the festival outreach, but that's part of it, but what it is that we do as a church uh, 24-7 right throughout the whole year with our whole lives. What is it about? And so we're going to look at the subject of true worshipers. So if you return with me in the Bibles, if you don't have one, you'll find one in the pew uh, in front of you, seats around you. Uh, You'll find it in um, John's Gospel chapter 4, and we'll read from verses 21 through 26. It's page number 1067, if you're not sure where John's Gospel is. Jesus is having a dialogue with um, a Samaritan woman, His disciples have gone off to try to find food. He's asked her for a drink. It's led to a conversation between the two of them about what it means to have living water and eternal life. So, Jesus declares to the woman in verse 21, "'Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews.'" Yet a time is coming and has come, has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. So, as I thought about um, true worshipers, um, let's think about the desire that all of us have in some capacity or other to worship. Um, according to a recent Metro report uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Burnley Football Club has the Premier League's most fanatical fans. Now, some of you will remember that back in 1976, Burnley were relegated uh, out of the Premier League. Well, they're back this year uh, at the expense of Newcastle. Uh, like I know anything about football. Um, But this this, uh, survey uh, discovered that the fans of the newly promoted Burnley are the most dedicated in the Premier League. According to a new survey, research from Virgin Money shows that the average Clarets fan spends more than 18 hours a week following their team. Uh, Some of us in the chapel here know a chap called Doug Healy. Uh, Doug, uh, very sadly, is, is dying of a terminal brain tumor. Um, he's also done The Fringe in the past, The Comedian, uh, and a member of this church. And I was chatting to Doug just yesterday, and his son Spencer was there, and he was telling me about one Burnley fan who uh, is particularly fanatical about his football. He'd seen a thing on the television. Uh, This guy, who um, once was known as Dave Beeston, uh, changed his name to Dave Burnley uh, by deed poll because he's such a, a, a fan of the Clarets. He even named his daughter, who was born 19 years ago, Clarette, after the color of his club. He loves football and everything associated with his football club. Now, maybe you know somebody that's fanatical about sports like that. They know everything that there is about their sports, their team, their favorite player. Uh, in fact, I overheard in the lounge just this morning, somebody said, I'm not sure if I'm coming to church tonight because Andy Murray's playing in the final at half past six. And uh, you don't say things like that around me uh, safely. So I said, well, if you, if you love Andy Murray and tennis more than you love God, you just stay home then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure they're speaking to me now. But um, but you know, the fanatical football fans, they just they, they get involved in everything. Uh, and when you talk to them, all they can talk about, it dominates the conversations. Uh, in fact, it's no exaggeration, I think, to say that someone like that Worships football. Worships football. This evening, this morning, pretty much every time that we meet together in Charlotte Chapel, we have what's called a call to worship. And Mike actually very helpfully this morning said that even though we call to worship in the corporate sense, it's actually a continuation of our worship that we've been doing, as Jonathan was saying, with all of our lives and everything that we do 24 7 but that we call it together as we come together uh, as this expression of part of the body of Christ. We sometimes read something from the Bible, uh, and then our introduction to our opening song or hymn will be something that myself or another will say, let us worship God by singing. Hymn, whatever. But that begs a series of questions in my mind as I've thought about it this week. First of all, what is worship? Uh, well, there's a little combination of words in the original language, in the Greek, that says worship is like to approach to kiss. It's a homage thing. It's the response of someone towards someone greater than they, in a sense of homage. Worship is uh, as, as is like to approach as to kiss. What kind of worship is appropriate then in relationship to God, and and what part does singing and music Play in worship. I know of a church who took three months out of their schedule every Sunday to come together without music, without music at all, just to allow people different expressions of how they can worship God. Wow, that's so hard, isn't it? Because we, we're okay, if somebody leads it and the songs there and the words there, and we get caught along in the uh, in, in the melody, we get caught along with the lyrics, we can we can offer up something. But we've tried this here in Charlotte Chapel on a number of occasions. I've said, let's just worship God with our words. And immediately people start thanking God or they start asking God for something. Rather than just adoring Him for who He is. Not for what He's done, but just to stand and and worship, to adore God for who He is. So what is worship? Well, here's a quote from the Baptist Union of Great Britain. Worship is a dialogue in which God and God's people speak with one another. We listen as God speaks to us in Scripture, as the Word is preached, and as Christ's presence comes close to us in the Holy Communion. We respond to God's love with our praises, our prayers, and the offering of our whole selves. When we gather for worship, we desire to discern God's will so that we may carry it out in daily life. To worship is to acknowledge God's worth in acts of praise as well as in daily life. I really love that last sentence there, to worship is to acknowledge God's worth in a whole variety of ways. So what do you consider, a uh, genuine question, you don't have to respond out just now, but you can think about it as you go home and email me during the week, what do you consider to be the highest priority for you and for others in worshiping God? Do you place a high priority in the way that you dress to come to church, for example? I've observed over many years in ministry now that in a lot of churches, Christians can get preoccupied by what I'm going to call S and T and F and H. Shirts and ties, frocks and hats. Now, don't hear me wrong on this, but we can very easily stress too much importance. On the outward appearance and neglect or ignore the inner reality of our hearts and motives. Do you remember when the prophet Samuel is commissioned by God to find a replacement king for the rebellious Saul, the first king of Israel that God can't really do much through? And he goes to this family, and as each of the brothers one by one are brought before Samuel, uh, he thinks this one looks a good a good example of what would be a good replacement king. But the Lord said to Samuel, in 1 Samuel 16 and 7, we have the the record, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, at the time when Jesus is speaking to this Samaritan woman, The temple worship, with all its important symbolisms and the types that are there, that pointed to God's gift of salvation, His mercy, and His grace, as well as the foreshadowing of a greater and superior heavenly temple in the holy city that is to come down from heaven, was all but lost as the people and the priests went through dry, powerless, routine religious observances that had octopus-like arms and legs of unnecessary and and extremely unhelpful traditions. I was witnessing to a young man yesterday, a young man who's far away from the kingdom, knows very little about Jesus other than His name. And he said, um, so, so, so being a Christian, um, that's like songs of praise, isn't it? And I went, no, no, please. Um, you know, there's obviously lots of good things in songs of praise, <laughs> as we've heard. But folks, if that's it, if that's all that Christianity is about, I had to say to this guy, no, 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 no. no. People there may, may well be genuinely expressing something about a relationship with Jesus, but songs of praise isn't Christianity. And, and neither is coming to church, Christianity. You see, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus is regularly seen taking on the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, and actually publicly berating them for their hypocrisy and their falsehood. Not only does He castigate them for their personal lack of honoring God, uh, God, of honoring God spiritually uh, as individuals, but He also condemns their religious efforts and works. Since rather than draw people to God, Jesus says, you'll even travel overseas to make people twice the sons of hell that they already are. It's a pretty hard word for the religious establishment of Jesus' day that thinks it's got God's message to give to the nations. Jesus says, you're hell-bound, and you're taking lots of people with you. At the close of the Old Testament, God speaks through the prophet Malachi, and we cannot surely be unmoved and unconcerned by the woeful lament of His heart. Do you know, sometimes I think that we read Scripture far too flippantly. Get into the spirit of what God is saying through the prophet Malachi. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will accept no offering from your hands. For 430 years, until a voice is heard proclaiming in the desert, prepare them with the way of the Lord, God's people, with God having said to them, I'm not going to accept any religious offering that you give to me. I wish somebody would close the temple doors. For 430 years, the people went on, almost ad infinitum, offering to God useless sacrifice, until John the Baptist appeared in the scene and said, Jesus is about to show up, you better repent. These are hard words. Of course, part of the conversation that Jesus is having with the Samaritan woman Concerns the accepted norms and conventions of how the Samaritans and the Jews claim to worship the one true God. And part of that tension in their conversation relates to the location. But God, who does not live in temples made by human hands, has already, through the prophetic tenure of Jeremiah, we've studied this just as a church this last year, uh, the year before, He's shown that God is not just with His people in the temple in Jerusalem. God can be with His people in exile. God can be with His people when even under under the anger of God, they're sent away from that place. God can still be with them. It's during that time in exile in Babylon that synagogue worship flourished. And it was through and during the time when Nehemiah came back to God and rebuilt the temple that we see something again of, of something beginning to happen that God never intended it to be by the time that Jesus now speaks to this woman. So, Jesus stresses that neither Jew nor Samaritans have got it right when it un- comes to understanding the nature of true worship. So, let's go back to that verse in 23, John 4, 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Now, I know that for some people, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty tolerant kind of person. You can pretty much do whatever you like in your expression of your love for Jesus. You can wear pretty much whatever you want. But some people, shirts and ties and frocks and heart, hats are very important. But can I suggest that these initials, S and T, F and H are good initials for what lies at the heart of Jesus' message tonight in regard to the kind of worship that God God approves of, because S and T stand for spirit and truth, and F and H can stand for flesh and hypocrisy. You see, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So, worship must first of all then be spirit-led, not flesh-driven. So what is spiritual worship? What does it mean to worship in spirit? Verse 24 gives us a clue. Jesus says, "God is spirit." So God is spirit, i.e. not anything natural. If he were natural, you would be able to see Him. And if God is spirit, then we conclude that our worship must, first and all, first of all, and primarily be a spiritual thing. It is our spirit that communicates with God's holy Spirit. Um, I've said this before, I know there's a little bit of contention about how the breakdown of of human beingness, if that's a word, and it's not, just made it, um, what that exists of, consists of, Human beings are a psychosomatic unity of body, soul, and spirit, and it's the spirit within us that communicates with God's Holy Spirit. The stuff of our soul, our mind, and our will, and our emotions can also be used to worship Him. We can also use our body in various expressions or postures. Some like to stand. Some like to sit. Some like to lie flat on their face. Some like to raise their hands. Some like to clap. You can use the physicality of who you are as part of your expression of worship, but the worship comes from the spirit within not even from your soul. Animals have a soulish nature. They don't have a spiritual nature created in the image of God. But my dog doesn't worship God. We've tried to teach him. It It just doesn't work. So, our worship can be the expression and experience of our whole being, but it is our spirit led by the Holy Spirit that worships. Now, we live in a Western culture, so we don't often appreciate, always appreciate the reality of the spiritual realm around us, as other cultures do. But you know, when we truly worship, something spiritual happens. When we truly worship, something happens in the spiritual realm around us. Psalm 22 and verse 3 says that God dwells in the praises of His people. True worship, then, is something that has significance and impact in the spiritual realm primarily, not in the natural, though there are measurable benefits in the natural realm. If we really worship God, not only does it please Him and honor Him, but it actually does us good as well. There is power in praise. But if worship is Spirit-led, and it is something that begins within the spiritual part of our being, then we can also recognize that true worship can only refer to people who are true disciples of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've thought about this, but you and I, if we're saved people, we are going to spend eternity giving God honor and glory and power and majesty and praise because He is worthy. We're going to be able to stand in His presence and just without thanking Him for what He's done, we're just going to worship Him for who He is. And I think here on earth, it's a good place to start learning that kind of stuff, to get over the whole sort of hang-ups that we have about our physicality in worship and even the way we think about it, but just learn in the Spirit to worship God. You see, while we can use songs and music to express our worship, they are not necessarily worship of God per se. Any of us can learn to sing worship songs, but that doesn't make us true worshipers. You can only become a true worshiper by experiencing new birth by the Holy Spirit. During a conversation with a man called Nicodemus, Jesus told him that he must be born again. Remember the conversation in John 3? Nicodemus, thinking in a very natural way, goes, born again. I was born once. I came out of my mother's womb. Now I'm an adult. Jesus, how can I climb back into my mother's womb to be born again? He's thinking naturally. So, Jesus very quickly kicks him away from that grotesque thought and says, it's not a natural process, Nick. It's a spiritual thing. You must be born from above. And, you know, we kind of laugh at Nicodemus' stupidity. But before we do that, can, can I just ask you to check your own heart and mind in this? Because surely how absurd it is for us to conclude that worshiping God has something to do with the way that we dress or the style of music we use the type of building that we meet in and the time of the week that we do it at we're thinking like natural people if you're hung up about that worships a spiritual thing and it comes from within our spirit worship is something that the father seeks and the kind of worship that he approves of is a spiritual phenomenon You see, because there can be a kind of fleshly worship. Of course, we can have a worship experience that comes from our human spirit without any reference to God's Holy Spirit whatsoever. Um, Some years ago, a friend of mine came down from Orkney, and he came to a football match at Hamden with us. And I know that we don't have a whole lot of reason to sing enthusiastically Hamden. But this guy sat and and looked at the antics of us, people who had lived in the South for a while and had been influenced by all that kind of worldly ways, Uh, just getting up, and and when Scotland was scoring once, really getting excited and dancing around and hugging each other. Boy, I'll tell you, by by the time that it came around to the the interval between at the halftime thing, he's on his feet, and he's dancing and singing like the rest of us. He just got caught up in the spirit of the thing, but it's not worship of God, and yet it was for him a worship experience. Do you know, I think that maybe part of the tragedy here is that some of us actually come to church and get caught up not in the worship experience of God but in the worship experience of our worship facility or the worship experience of worshiping our music band or worshiping the form in which it's done rather than allowing the Spirit to take us into the worship of God the Father. Worship, I'm moving on a little bit here, guys, at the back. It uh, must also be a truthful experience, not a hypocritical performance. So, what is truth? Now, that's a question. But what I mean is simply this. What is the truth about God, and what is the truth about you and me? Well, if we can truthfully answer these two questions, then our worship, if it's Spirit-led, will take on a new dimension. Because what is the truth about God? Well, there's nothing more truthful than the Word of God. His Word is truth, and when we worship God, it must be according to His truth and based on His Word. God will inhabit your praises as much as you inhabit His Word. Uh, I thought I would find out the truth about God this last week, so I Googled it. Um, What is the truth about God? And within 12 point something seconds, I was enlightened that 87 million pages exist on the World Wide Web that could tell me the truth concerning God." So I didn't read any of them. You see, there is one man who claimed to be God, and that one man, Jesus Christ, could verify the claim that by His teaching, His life, His miracles, the death, and the resurrection, that Jesus gives full validation to the claim set out in our Holy Scriptures of the Bible regarding God's existence, his identity, his work of creation, his work of salvation and grace, his righteous sovereign rule and judgment, and his plans and purpose for the future of the entire universe, seeing everything seen and unseen within it. If you believe this book, the Bible, then you're going to accept its truth about God, including the judgment of Jesus when He comes back, and Jesus as the Son of God. And if we have that, then Jesus says it's actually a prerequisite to be a true worshiper, that you must believe in Jesus. But you may ask, but can't I simply go to church, sing my favorite hymns, not have to believe or obey any stuff the Bible teaches? Sure. Sure stay at home on a Sunday night and listen to songs of praise. Sure. But you will not be the kind of worshiper the Father is seeking. The institutional church may benefit from your giving and attendance. It may even enlist you in its choir or one of its music groups. It may ask you to lead the congregational singing. It may even employ you on its staff team. But if you don't have what God wants you to have, you've got nothing to offer in the sense of what can be classified as God-honoring worship. Because that begins by the Spirit and by truth. So, as I come to the close, what is the truth about you and me? As you sit here tonight, what's the truth about you? You'd be very glad to know that God has not given me a word of knowledge about anybody in this building right now. I don't know what's going on in your life, don't know what's in your heart, don't know what you get up to during the week when you're not pretending to be a Christian. I have no idea and I'm very glad that you don't either. But what is the truth? Sometimes God does give to other people an insight into what's going on in our lives. And whenever He reveals something to another person, through a word of knowledge or through discernment, it's because God wants to move us on in our experience of being truthful with Him. God wants to get through that smartly dressed, that presented external form, that groomed, that is groomed and arranged in the best way we can manage, and hope that no one, even or especially God, notice what goes on on inside. Now, is that the way that God wants us to come? No, God wants us to be truthful. He wants us to be men and women of integrity and honesty. Mike used this illustration this morning. I'm going to read it in its full context again tonight. Do you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray? In Luke 19, to some who were very confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, "'God, I thank You that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get.'" But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man said Jesus rather than the other went home justified before God. We see another example of a person humbling themselves before God in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah the prophet writes, I saw the Lord... Seated on a throne, high and exalted, "'and the train of His robe filled the temple. "'Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. "'With two wings they covered their faces, "'with two they covered their feet, "'and with two they were flying, "'and they were calling to one another, "'Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. "'The whole earth is full of His glory. "'At the sound of their voices, "'the doorposts and the threshold shook, "'and the temple was filled with smoke. "'Woe to me,' I cried. "'I am ruined.' For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is, atone, your, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Do you know what that is, friends? that's worship that pleases God the Father. You see, the worshiper, Isaiah, and the tax collector has had a spirit-led encounter that reveals to him the nature and character, first of all, of God's holiness and purity. He's also faced with the true dreadful reality of his own sinful condition and unworthiness. And when he acknowledges it, doesn't put on the mask, takes the mask away and acknowledges that. The result is forgiveness, atonement, and the salvation that follows includes a commission to live as a changed man in a world that neither knows God nor acknowledges Him. This remains the experience and expectation of true worshipers today, an encounter with God, a stark reminder of what we're like, yes, even as Christians, who fall short of the glory of God, if it were not for Jesus, You and I would do nothing, have nothing. The things you've done for Jesus won't count. doesn't matter what they are. It's only the things that are done through Jesus and by Jesus that count. An encounter with God, a stark reminder of what we're like, and the challenge to live credible witnesses before a watching world that validate the incredible good news message that Jesus saves lost people so that in turn they can become true worshipers. Now, you may well be wearing a smart shirt and tie. You may even have a posh frock or hat on, and very nice you look too, I'm sure. But you may also have set aside the flesh and hypocrisy to worship the Father in spirit and truth. And He is very pleased with you The Bible assures us of that. We're going to conclude our time of worship together tonight. All that's happened here tonight is is what we offer to God the Father. Be pleased with us, Father, we pray. Uh, What David did in the leading, the interviews, what Jonathan did, um, even the thoughts and inclination of your heart and mine as we're here. God, we're worshiping You, the Father. Not in form or rituals. Not in codes styles, but we're doing it out of a spirit that loves Jesus, out of a truth-based reality that says, we love Him too.